Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ida Volk, Europe Correspondent in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 2nd of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week... We come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, the EU agreed to a partial oil embargo on Russia, but with a carve-out excluding countries such as Hungary. Ursula von der Leyen, head of the European Commission, claimed a win amidst intense criticism of Europe's continuing purchases of Russian energy. I'm very glad that the leaders were able to agree in principle on the six uh, sanctions package. Council should now be able to finalize a ban on almost 90% of all Russian oil imports by the end of the year. This is an important step forward. Um, The remaining 10% on these one, we will soon return to the issue. Is Hungary's strategy of blocking EU initiatives until it gains concessions, paying off for Viktor Orban? Then we turn back to Russia's war in Ukraine. What's the significance of Russia's latest offensive in the Donbass region? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Ido is actually in the mothership at, at NSHQ. Katie and I are still here in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Let's get into it. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban recently declared a state of emergency, giving himself still greater power over his country. And the justification was war in neighboring Ukraine. But Hungary is also, at least according to its critics, hurting Europe's efforts to support Ukraine in that same war by opposing many sanctions on Moscow. Ido, you've been writing on this. What is the significance of this Hungarian state of emergency? Because there was a similar, if if you were an Orban fan or neutral toward this, step was taken during the pandemic. If you're an Orban critic, you would say this was a a similar power grab had already been taken earlier on in the pandemic for COVID reasons. A state of emergency was declared again. As we said, the justification was the war in Ukraine. What's the significance of that? So Viktor Orban, as you said, during the pandemic, declared a state of emergency, which allows the government to issue decrees which do not need to pass through the normal parliamentary scrutiny process and additionally can counter existing laws and infringe on fundamental rights in a way that would not be legal under a normal legal regime. And so the government had given itself emergency powers during the pandemic And these powers were due to expire in just a few weeks. And so the government has is going to let those powers expire, but has 
issued a state of emergency. It's called a state of danger. The government first passed a, a constitutional amendment allowing it to declare a state of danger in the event of war what it calls a state of danger in the event of war in the neighbouring country and then promptly declare that state of, of danger which gives it many of the same uh, legal rights as during the pandemic. And essentially the, the critics in Hungary say that the government has gotten used to ruling without even very limited scrutiny and checks which it has systematically dismantled. Fidesz, Orbán's party, has a two-thirds majority in parliament. Many of the kind of checks and the limitations on the government's power have been systematically dismantled over Orbán's term in office and still the government uh, is, is removing even the limited checks on its power. So it's basically just a kind of power grab. It, it makes this kind of temporary state permanent or, or de facto permanent. There are many in Hungary and elsewhere who have said that for years the European Union has, for a variety of reasons, not taken a hard enough stance toward what's happening domestically in Hungary, towards abuses of rule of law, towards the state of the media in Hungary, at state of Hungarian democracy. There are, there, there are a variety of theories that people float as to why this has been. One of them is that the EU doesn't actually really have good or strong mechanisms to deal with a party that has ascended to the EU and is not fully playing by the EU's rules. But now there's another wrinkle in this. I mean, you can push back if you see it differently. There's another wrinkle here, which is it's not just that Hungary is domestically causing sort of strife for the EU, but it is also uh, throwing this other wrinkle into European Union foreign policy. Can you tell us a bit more about the latest on the partial oil embargo with carve outs, which some might just say is not an embargo, but anyway, go on. What's the latest there? So Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, promised almost a month ago that the EU would impose an embargo on imports of Russian oil. As we, we've talked before several times on this podcast about the dependence that Europe has on Russian energy, uh, imports of, of oil and gas, it's a bit easier to conceivably phase out the use of oil rather than gas for a few reasons, including that the kind of infrastructure is a bit easier to, to repurpose from other sources. And also, I believe it makes up a smaller proportion of energy imports than gas. But von der Leyen had announced this almost a month ago and as part of a so-called sixth package of sanctions. But multiple rounds of talks had failed to make progress on this issue. And Hungary was presenting itself as the strongest opponent of this oil embargo because Viktor Orban is by some distance the most pro-Putin leader in, of an EU member state and Hungary is quite heavily dependent on Russian energy. And he said that he didn't want Hungarians to pay the price for the war in Ukraine. And rightly or wrongly, it's, he, he continued to block EU plans for an energy embargo. And in the end, weeks after they, they first promised it, they found this compromise this week. So oil imports by ship will be phased out but oil imports by pipeline will be allowed to continue. And obviously, Hungary being a landlocked country continues to get its oil from Russia by pipeline. In fact, they've even negotiated an opt-out that says that if their pipeline is damaged, they're not going to be penalised if they get energy from another source because the pipeline goes through Ukraine. Hungary perceives that as a risk for obvious reasons. But as you said, one of the kind of perennial issues with Hungary as a EU member state is that 
once a country joins the EU and decides it doesn't really want to play ball and it wants to to use its its, its voting rights on issues which demand unanimity, which is quite a lot of them, to extract more concessions or, or ask for more money or block foreign policy initiatives which it doesn't like. There aren't a whole bunch of mechanisms to to limit the effectiveness of, of such a strategy. And Hungary has very much used its position as an EU member state to block initiatives which it doesn't like. But I think there's quite an interesting dynamic here, which is that Hungary, along with Poland, had long been the kind of most reticent member state. And basically, both countries which are ruled by illiberal nationalist governments had each other's back in the EU's institutions. And so anytime the EU decided that uh, it might want to sanction one or other of these countries, the other country would use its weight to, to block any kind of a, initiative. And because of the EU's rules requiring unanimous voting on, on many issues, often these that strategy succeeded in preventing sanction of either Hungary or Poland. But Hungary is far more pro-Russia than Poland. Poland has been part of the group of EU member states which is pushing for the hardest line on Russia mm-hmm. because of the war of U- in Ukraine. And Hungary is on completely the other side of the spectrum in being really quite pro-Putin, pro-Russia and arguing against sanctions and so on. And so one of the effects of Hungary's position has been driving a kind of wedge between these two historic historical allies in the EU who had traditionally had each other's backs. And it's a really open question as to what extent their kind of illiberal alliance, which had prevented a lot of meaningful action being taken, for example, on the rule of law in both countries, to what extent that is going to survive the stress that the war in Ukraine is putting on it. I do have one question for Katie here before we move on from this segment, which is Hungary has also come under criticism from various international actors for its friendliness toward China. Do you think that we could see a similar dynamic play out with respect to Hungarian-Chinese relations, or is it not really comparable because Russia's position vis-a-vis the EU is, is different because it went to war in Ukraine? I think the the important point to draw out of it that is in common and that I think certainly China would be very focused on is to the extent to which there may be a, a wedge that Hungary could drive within EU unity. I think I'm sure that the Kremlin has been surprised by the extent to which the unity and the resolve from European Union leaders had been holding up by and large to date. I think the kind of narrative you would have heard from both high-level Russian and Chinese officials before the war in Ukraine was that there were such deep political divisions. There's so much domestic polarization. There is so much dependence on, on Russian oil and gas, on business contracts with China, that there would be a real reluctance by the EU to take meaningful action and that perhaps they could have relied on this sort of divided, decadent, unable to, to reach an agreement perception of the EU that is sometimes that is sometimes the perception in these capitals. So I think they will have been dis- surprised by the extent to which they were able to get behind significant, serious sanctions rapidly. I think the key issue now is that the extent to which they're going to be able to stay with that, because Putin will absolutely have factored in to his thinking here what would be the Western response. And could Russia withstand the economic pain longer than Europe could? Would there be a clamor from European domestic populations, particularly as we 
get into the autumn and the winter months, there's already a cost of living crisis. If there are going to be massive increases in energy costs, perhaps even energy shortages, I think the thinking in the Kremlin will have been that Europe will crack first and Russia will Mm -hmm. be able to withstand that pain for longer. If there are already signs of division, that's just very encouraging to Putin. And it's also encouraging to other authoritarian leaders. And for instance, the Chinese Communist Party leadership who are looking at the European reaction now to understand what would be the likely response to any Chinese military action in the future. It is very encouraging to see this near agreement on on cutting off at least oil imports by sea, but it just could not be more critical for everybody who, who wants this to end at the negotiating table and who wants Putin to quickly enter peace talks to keep up that resolve and to redouble these efforts now, because failing to do that is only going to make this a a much longer, much more painful, much more devastating war. We're going to speak now more more directly about the the war itself, as opposed to its sort of side effects and and international relations more broadly. Um, But I do want to let listeners know that Ido has written both on the Hungarian state of emergency and on the Hungary EU oil dance, and we will put the links to both of those pieces in the show notes to this episode. So now, Russia's war in Ukraine has been going on since late February, and clearly the overall war has not gone as Russia has planned. But more lately, Russia has claimed some success with its offense in the Donbass region. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has described conditions there as indescribably difficult. Katie, can you tell us a bit about the latest that's happened there? Obviously, this is not the total victory that it thought it would have in three days, but why Russia has been claiming some victory in in that region at this time. Yeah, so just to give a real like broad brush, high level overview of how we got to this point. So I think you've seen this kind of shift backwards and forwards in the overall both momentum on the ground and then narrative around the war and, and, and how it's going and who might be winning. We had during those in the run-up to the war, we, we could see what looked like this overwhelming level of, of Russian force gathered on Ukraine's borders. There were predictions, and it, you know, it, it seems that, that Vladimir Putin believed these, that there would be very little um, defense, that perhaps they would take the capital Kiev in 72 hours. The Ukrainian government would have to go into exile. This would be a, a, a very quick, overwhelming defeat of Ukraine by Russia. Obviously, what we saw in reality then was the opposite happening, this massive Ukrainian defensive response, the, the abject failure of the Russian offensives on both Kiev and then the the second largest city, Kharkiv, both of which saw Russian forces forced forced to to pull back. And then then we started to see the narrative shift the other way. You know, we we started to hear really serious discussion of could Ukraine win this war? How far should they go? Should they try to take back all of the east? Should they try to take back Russian occupied Crimea. We've seen this sort of a discussion about the course of, of the war, proximate to it to events on the ground, but but really from from outside actors. But but what we've seen really start to shift over the last weeks, I think, particularly I guess over the course of the last month, is a real shift in tactics from the Russian side. So we saw them regroup after those early failures, and really concertedly refocus their efforts on the east. So specifically the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are connect- collectively known as the Donbass. They are directly alongside 
Russia's border. So the issues that they had, for instance, um, trying to push towards Kiev with overextended supply lines, that's not the case here. They are much more able to support their frontline forces. They also have friendly forces in, in that area. So this is where back in 2014, Russian-backed separatists uh, claimed parts of these territories and declared their own um, separatist People's Republic, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. So it's, it's a very different battlefield that, that Russian troops are, are fighting on there. And with this, frankly, more coherent and seems to be better thought through approach, they have been making slow but incremental progress and they are starting slowly to to take territory so we saw the fall of mariupol the southeastern port city on the azov coast in late may um, 16th may after very stiff ukrainian defense they surrendered and that city is now under russian control and the latest push we're seeing now and the most sort of significant area to focus on is around the city of severodonetsk which is one of the last Ukrainian controlled cities in the Luhansk region, somewhere where, again, Ukrainian forces have been putting up a, a very, very heavy fight. The casualty estimates that the president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, is giving are that you know, he, he admits that they may be losing as many as 60 to 100 troops every single day in this battle for the east, with as many as 500 wounded every day. So it gives you some sense of just the intensity um, of the fighting that is going on in this region. And around Severodonetsk, we've heard the governor of the Luhansk region say today, the morning of this recording um, on June 1st, that there are still Ukrainian troops in that city. He estimates they currently control around 20% um, of that city, but he says they're fighting street by street, block by block now. And he acknowledges that Russian troops are in control of some 70% of that city. I think we can expect Severodonetsk will fall to, to to Russian troops in the coming weeks, perhaps the coming days. There are still at least 10,000 civilians thought to be trapped um, in that city in, in very difficult conditions. But, you know, I think the, the broader point to take out of this is that, you know, the early narratives that Russia was close to defeat and that it could be pushed back and, and humiliated and taught a lesson that it would never for, for forget, that is no longer compatible with the situation we're, we're, we're seeing on the ground. We are seeing now slow but incremental progress and the sense i think is is now shifting that the momentum is moving back towards the russian side and that russia you know has changed its short-term tactical objectives but perhaps has not changed its overall strategic objectives of weakening perhaps eventually destroying Ukraine with this creeping military offensive and also with the absolute devastation of the Ukrainian economy that is coming alongside it. I think Katie's point about narratives and counter-narratives is a really important one. And, and I think you're completely right to say that at the beginning, the Russians and, and many observers in the West thought it would be over in, in a matter of days or weeks. And then once the Ukrainians started defending really well, we thought, as you said, maybe we can push them back outside, out of Donetsk and Luhansk and maybe even Crimea as a kind of overcompensation for that initial hubris. And it, and it, it's probably, as we start to see Russia make these slow but real gains, it's probably also important to not once again react too far in, in the other direction. The reality is that Russia has had two 
significantly pare down its military objectives. If you look at a map of the territory that they control, they control a, a swathe of the territory in the south and some in the east. And while they are making progress towards the west, it's pretty slow and it will take them a very long time to get to maybe the, the Dnieper or further west. And Katie spoke very well a few weeks ago about Putin's decision not to declare a full mobilization on the 9th of May and, and so on. And they are... The, the Rus- although the Russians, they have superior numbers, they're not fully mobilized in the way that the Ukrainians are. And just today, for example, the US has said that it will send multiple launch rocket systems, although not the long range ones that the Ukrainians wanted, but they're still much, much better than, than what they currently have. So it is, po- it is possible that the war might settle down into a kind of grinding stalemate rather than an ad- seeing Russian advances, but equally Russian advances might also continue. It's probably important to take a step back and not overcompensate every time that the winds seem to be changing a little. Sure. I guess my question for both of you now is if this does, as Ido suggested, I don't want to say settle down, but if it does turn out to be, I don't know, an, a sort of a grimly enhanced version of what has been going on in Ukraine since 2014, which is you know, Russian laying claim to the eastern part of the country with fighting going on. What does that mean for Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I would say the the first thing is I feel like the the grinding stalemate is the best case scenario, awful though it though it though it is. And and to get to that, I think bringing the two topics back together, if you start to see cracks in the resolve and the sense of which weapons should we send to Ukraine, how fast should we send them, how great should the restrictions be that we put on Russian imports. It's just that what Ukraine needs in order to get to that stalemate is to be able to show that it is at least able to hold the Russian forces in place and and to send a very strong message to the Kremlin that they need to start thinking seriously about about a way out to engage meaningfully in peace negotiations, which they have not done. I think there's been this narrative creep in of we need to start talking seriously about how much territory um, should Ukraine concede. Henry Kissinger talked about this at the the World Economic Forum in Davos last week. And it just, it misses the point that it's not through an unwillingness from the Ukrainian side to negotiate, to enter peace talks, so that they have been living with the de facto occupation of, of large swathes of the East for, for eight years at, at this point, a- along with Crimea. It's not because Ukraine is not prepared to negotiate that we can't get to a, a ceasefire here. It's because Russia still thinks it can get more. And as long as it is still, Russia is suffering to the best information that we have, very serious losses, both of its troops and its equipment and the Russian economy is suffering. But as long as Putin and his generals think they can keep going and that they may be able to keep slowly taking towns, cities, pockets of ground, they're not going to enter peace talks. I think a lot of the time it seems like the same the, the different camps want the same endpoint, which is to get quickly to the negotiating table, get to a ceasefire, and get back to something like the 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 pre-February 2022 stalemate with some Ukrainian territory still de facto in Russian hands. But the problem is right now, Russia is still currently able to to fund and prosecute its offensive, and as long as that's the case, I, I don't think they are going to. They're just not interested in talking until 
they've gotten as much as they can. It is the position of this podcast that nobody needs to be taken advice from Henry Kissinger. I will just say that the leader in this week's magazine is on this. We will put this in the show notes as well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We are going to turn now to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Great work, gang. Okay, so our question this week is on sports, kind of. Basically, uh, this week we have a question about the recent Champions League match in Paris and the chaos that ensued at the stadium. One listener noted that France has blamed ticket fraud, saying that then caused police brouhaha. But then Liverpool's Metro mayor blamed the police and the French opposition, said that the whole thing puts France in a bad light. 
So this listener wanted to know, which is it? And is this really about or a reflection on France? I could not begin to answer that question. So Ida, we are going to turn to you. France hosted the final of the Champions League, which is a European football tournament, on the 28th of May at the Stade de France Stadium in Paris. And the kickoff was delayed by just over half an hour because thousands of fans, overwhelmingly Liverpool fans, hadn't managed to get in, stuck outside the stadium. And there was, as kickoff approached, there was increasing tension. People were. There were police were using tear gas. Some, at least, some fans who had valid tickets were being rejected uh, for entry to the grounds, which obviously was causing a lot of exasperation and frustration and anger, justifiably. And there were also large crowds of people because people uh, because a lot of people weren't getting in, but new people were continuing to arrive, and that led to some fear among observers and among people there that there could be a kind of potential potentially fatal crush which is an especially traumatic prospect for Liverpool's fans because that club lives with the legacy of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989 which was a crush in which 89 people died which is one of the deadliest accidents in the history of football and so there, there was a lot of blame as to accusations and counter accusations as to who was to blame for this chaos, potentially dangerous chaos. So the French government and the police and also UEFA very quickly, within literally minutes of, of the match finishing, and in fact, actually before the match kicked off, the police had issued a, a statement taking this line. So the government, UEFA, the police had all settled on this line that tens of thousands of Liverpool fans without tickets were trying to make their way into the stadium illicitly. And that was causing a kind of build-up and that was causing the, the chaos at the gates of the stadium. And they stuck to this line on the night and then on the day after, despite quite a lot of evidence that this was probably not the whole story. So they claimed that thirty to 40,000 people, Liverpool fans, came without tickets and tried to make their way in. And if there really were tens of thousands of people without tickets, presumably not they, they wouldn't have been able to get in because then there would have been obviously massive overcrowding at the stadium, which is not what was seen. And there weren't any kind of massive crowds of people then leaving the stadium, which obviously there would have been. There would have been thousands of people who would not have gotten in, who who would then have had to leave. And there, there are no reports, no videos of tens of thousands of people having failed to get in, leaving. In fact, what is more likely to have contributed to this chaos is a combination of factors. So one of them is that there was a strike on the suburban rail line, which many fans would typically use to get to the Stade de France from Paris. And instead, Liverpool fans were advised to take another line, which also has a stop at the leaving to the Stade de France, except that passage is typically has a much lower capacity than the RERB passage. And so there was a kind of bottleneck because it was over capacity and also many people weren't getting in at the stadium. And it seems like there were also technical problems because some tickets, uh, despite being valid, didn't work. Some stewards were overwhelmed. The Liverpool fans, having come from the RERD route, were at the Z gate of the stadium, which has the lowest capacity and is the least prepared to deal with such a large number of people. And then once the kind of frustration and tension started mounting, people who were there, witnesses, told me that the police were using violence as a kind of first resort. So they were using batons, using their shields, using pepper spray on 
people, many of whom had a right to be there and who were just frustrated that they weren't getting in. And that led to an increased amount of tension, especially because then as people were getting tear gas and so on, they retreated back towards where they came from because they couldn't get into the stadium. But new people continued to arrive and on this kind of overcrowded concourse, there was a, the fear and the, the tension started to mount. But possibly one of the things which prevented this getting much, much worse was that these are Liverpool fans. And so they live with the memory of um, Hillsborough and they know what happens in a dangerous crowding, in a dangerous kind of crowded crush situation. And so people who were there told me that people were very supportive towards each other and they, they were really trying to avoid a crush because they know intimately um, what happens, unfortunately, what happens when there's an uncontrolled crush. There's little to no precedent for tens of thousands of people trying to get into a big football match without tickets. There might be a few hundred or a few thousand people trying to get in without tickets, but tens of thousands is seen as quite implausible by the people I spoke to. And this whole kind of saga and the really quite myopic, I think, reaction from the government mm. does raise questions as to how effectively France is going to be able to host next year's Rugby World Cup and the Olympics in, in two years um, because obviously uh, this is not the last time that France might have to deal with some issues such as overcrowding. This is an exciting week in that often we speak about things on this podcast but have not actually written an article on them. But coincidentally, Ido actually did write about this and we have a link to that piece that we will put in. That's right. Show notes. Thank you very much for that extremely nuanced answer about a Champions League match. Will you now take us home? Thanks to all of you sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Deirdre Finnerty on conditions in Irish mother and baby homes. If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, or if you're a new listener and you enjoyed this, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. We have another ask, which is that you please rate us five stars. All right, five stars only. And leave us a kind review. It really does help and we appreciate it. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.